If you would be so kind as to stand, we'll read a couple verses out of the text that we're going to look at this morning. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 19, 41. Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. We're going to look at those in some verses beyond there, but let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to your people through your word, Lord, that your word would set us free, your word would heal. You would set our expectations, Lord, exactly as they should be. We ask that you would do this for your glory and our greater joy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at one of two verses in Scripture that show that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's kind of amazing. And we're going to see why he wept here in Luke chapter 19. Albert Smith, in the 1800s, he said this. He said, tears are the safety valve of the heart when too much pressure is laid upon it. I've been thinking about this phenomenon, this very human phenomenon of crying, of tears, of weeping, which is crying to a whole nother level, of getting choked up. You know, this is a very human response, our very human response to all sorts of emotions that run through our souls, you know, everything from sadness to joy. You ever weep for joy? You ever get choked up because of something so beautiful that you can't even talk? Some people weep with or cry, you know, in anger, others in relief, you know, and then the tears just start to flow. It's been said that when a man cries, it's not because he's weak, but because he's been strong perhaps for too long. There's a Jewish proverb that says, what soap is to the body, tears are to the soul. You know, this is an interesting Phenomenon. I've thought about it many times over the years because I don't. I don't typically cry when most people do, and then when other people don't get choked up over something, I find myself choked up. And I always thought, for a while, for a long time, I thought something's wrong with me. I'm weird, you know. But I understand now that everybody's emotional makeup is a little bit different. Everybody's been through different things and certain other things trigger in us differently. You know, I got all choked up recently. My wife and I were watching a documentary on Jesse Owens who won four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics in Germany right in front of the monster racist Adolf Hitler. It was so beautiful. watching Jesse just dominate those Olympics, that I I was sitting there choked up with tears in my eyes. You know, I get choked up when my kids break through on something they've been struggling with or trying for. 
You know, I'll have a memory of my mom and dad who are both gone to be with the Lord. And I can find myself laughing and crying at the same time. If you, have, if you knew my mom, she was a character. You know, you, you, can't just la- you can't just cry when you think of her. You, you, I have to laugh, you know. Some people cry in physical pain. I don't. I moan and groan and complain. <laughs> but the, I, it never brings tears. It's not, it doesn't strike me that way. Others cry with emotional pain, some for joy, you know, when, when there's a, re- so others when there's, they're relieved, you know, the, finally the pressure's off, the finals are over, you know, and you've been up, 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 and, and now you're just, oh, you can just let it out and it leaks out, you know. Acts of kindness, acts of kindness get me most of the time. I don't know if you guys have seen on YouTube, there's a judge in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, Judge Caprio. I'm addicted to watching that guy. It's like little five-minute things. These people come before the court, and he just treats everybody with so much dignity, and he's, he's so merciful in his judgment, you know, and I just get choked up every time. I don't know why. I'm a softie for that stuff. There's a guy on, another guy on YouTube who fakes like he's a homeless guy. And he goes out and, he, and he's asking, hey, can you give me a dollar? You know, and sometimes people give him a dollar. Sometimes they'll give him 10 bucks. But whatever they do, he gives the money back. And he says, I don't need this. And he gives them 100 times whatever they gave him. He'll give them $100 back or 1,000 bucks. You know, big, and it's all in ones. And, and he just blows their mind. And they're like, what? You know? And I, I get choked up. I've had tears coming out. I don't know why. Generosity immediately rewarded chokes me up. It might not choke you up. but Some people cry for a hopelessness or they feel empathy towards someone or a sense of gratitude. I've experienced that. You know? I found for myself, I don't know about you, but when there's sudden tragedy... And I've experienced that several times in my life. I've found that my adrenaline kicks in and I get into this mode of trying to figure out what help I can be. And then it's later, after the whole drama is over, that the emotions will come. You know, I went through a hard season. I, was, I went through a season of depression in my 20s. And I didn't cry didn't get choked up, didn't feel any emotions for seven years. And it began to really scare me, to feel that numb inside. And I remember the moment, I remember where I was. It was down by the Ocean Beach Pier. I lived in the Ocean Beach. I was going to college. I was down by the pier, and there was just this young girl pushing her car, her little baby pram, you know, with the baby in it. And I just, I just got choked up, I, could, I got tears in my eyes, and I was like, thank you, God, I'm still alive. <laughs> it was just the beauty of a young mother with a little baby. Maybe you'd look at that and go, whatever. I don't, know, I don't know why it struck me, but it did. And I was just glad that I was alive inside again. You know, some people can't stop crying when they're in a depression. That's not me, but it may be you. 
And I can't judge you, we can't judge each other because I'm not the standard of all human experience, you know? I'm not the standard of all human experience. And neither are you. We're all different. We've all been through different things. You know, we're all put together a little bit differently, emotionally, chemically. That's why some medications won't work. That work for someone, it won't work for you because we're a little bit, our makeup is a little bit different. You know, the Bible records instances when many of the giants of the faith wept. When they wept. Abraham wept when his, at the grave of his wife Sarah. Very moving scene. Esau wept when he didn't get the blessing of his father, and Jacob got the blessing. Hannah wept when she couldn't conceive a child. David and his best friend Jonathan wept when they were parting ways and they knew they wouldn't see each other again. They were best friends. A prostitute wept in brokenness and gratitude at the feet of Jesus. Peter wept when he failed the Lord. He denied he even knew the Lord. And he realized, I'm not all that I thought I was, you know. Mary Magdalene wept outside the tomb of Jesus before she saw him raised from the dead. John wept in Revelation 5-4 when he looked and there was no one worthy to open the scroll. And then Jesus came in and here's one who is worthy. Now as Jesus drew near, back to our text here in in, uh, Luke 19-41, As he drew near to Jerusalem, as he came over the crest of the Mount of Olives and the city came into view, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus wept. You know, in in this word here in the Greek, it means that he was convulsively weeping. Like the deep sobs I don't know if you've ever wept like that. I have a couple times in my life. But Jesus fell apart inside as he was looking over the city of Jerusalem. Now in a few days, henceforth, he is going to be crucified. Is that what he's weeping for here? Is he weeping here for himself? We're going to see in our text that that is not what is happening here. He's not weeping for himself. In a few days in the Garden of Gethsemane, down at the bottom, see this is the top of the Mount of Olives, back what it would have looked like in Jesus' day, and you go down into a valley, the Kidron Valley, and then you go up to Jerusalem there. But down towards the bottom of the Mount of Olives there, near the Kidron Valley, is the Garden of Gethsemane, and not many days hence, Jesus will be in that garden weeping for himself in such emotional turmoil that he will sweat, as it were, drops of blood. But that's not what's happening here. He's not weeping here for himself. He's weeping for the city of Jerusalem, and we'll see why. But real quick, Jesus' general emotional state was one of joy and one of rejoicing. We see several times through the Gospels, that Jesus, is, he even mentions it. I rejoice before you, Father. He had this joy about him. But as Isaiah 53, that great messianic prophecy said would be true of Messiah, 
He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Grief was an acquaintance of his. He knew what it's like to experience grief. And he expressed as a human, fully God, fully man, all the emotions that we know he knew. Did you know that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness? He knows all the stuff you're going through. He knows the pressure that's on you. He knows. And he's not mad at you. He's not sick and tired of you. He sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, in our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be one of us. God became one of us. Jesus understands all of the emotions we experience. You know that you've probably heard it said, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Anybody know? Jesus wept, right? John eleven thirty five. 35. This is when he wept in a different context. And it's actually the shortest verse. There's a little bit of trivia that we don't really need to know, but in the, it's the shortest verse in English, okay? If you go into the Greek, which is the original that the scripture was recorded in, it's not the shortest verse. The shortest verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which says to us, rejoice always. The shortest verse in the Greek is rejoice always. The second shortest is Jesus wept. And it's because he wept. Because he, of what he went through, we can rejoice always and in all circumstances And so why was Jesus weeping here in this text here? It says, as he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it, and he said, if you had known even you, and he's speaking here to his people, the Jewish people there in the city of Jerusalem, if you had known even you, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, you can't see it. You won't see it. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone left upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's not weeping here for himself. He's weeping for his people, the Jewish people. He's weeping for it because of their blindness. You don't know what I'm doing right now. You won't see it. He does, they don't realize what he's about to accomplish, even though he's told them. He knows that their misguided expectation about what he's going to do here in Jerusalem as he comes into the city, it will set, it's setting them up for disillusionment and even worse. He weeps here because he knows that they expect him as the Messiah to right then and there lead a violent overthrow of the Roman oppression over them and bring a political peace that they so long for. He knows that when his people, the Jewish people, the people in the city of Jerusalem that he's looking down upon, when they realize that he's not going to kill Romans, and lead a political 
revolution. Jesus knows that they will be so disappointed in him that they're going to turn on him. He knows that the praise, remember last time, the praise and the red carpet, the palm branches? He knows that all of that is going to turn. These folks will be soon calling, the same folks that are praising him here will be calling for his death. And he's not just weeping over that. It doesn't stop there. That's not the reason he's weeping for them, that they're going to be turning on him. It's not about him. But he knows that their insistence on resistance and their push for violence and overthrow of Rome, he knows that not many years henceforth, Rome is going to have had enough And there's going to be a terrible smashing of Jerusalem and a slaughtering of over a million Jews and a scattering of most of the rest. This is why Jesus is weeping. Not because they're going to turn on him. Jesus was never about himself. But he knows that their insistence on the resistance and their their continually poking the bear of Rome is going to lead Rome to be fed up and they're going to come in and smash Jerusalem, slaughter over a million Jews and scatter most of the rest of them. Jesus, knowing this, he pauses as he looks over the city. This is the scene here. He pauses as he looks over the city that he so loves and he begins to convulsively weep for the city. He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for their loss and their coming pain. You see, they recognize him as Messiah. They know he's the Messiah. That's what all the praise that we saw last time, remember they were praising him so loud, the Pharisees said, Jesus, stop them from praising you. And Jesus said, if I tell them to stop, the very stones will cry out. Because they see who I am. I am the Messiah. But they don't know. They don't realize what he's about. That's a very interesting thing. Their idea of what he was up to at the time of this visitation to Jerusalem, their idea was more based on their political desire and not on the word of God. We've got political desires, guys. I've got political desires. The Hungarians right now have political desires. They're just as divided as the U.S. The Israelis had a division before this attack that was unbelievable. It looked like Israel was going to be blown apart. The Russians are in disagreement over what their their president is doing in the Ukraine. The Ukrainians are divided. In every hamlet, every village, every little town across the world, the Serbians, I live there, they're divided over their government. Everybody is. It's not just us. Everybody has political desires. Their idea of what Jesus was going to do coming into Jerusalem was more based on their political desire than on what God had been repeatedly telling them. They're expecting him to relieve them of their local and present political frustrations by leading a violent overthrow of Rome. And he's not going to be doing that. 
And what does expectation unfulfilled equal in our souls? It equals disillusionment. It equals disappointment. It can equal anger and becoming abusive. And this is what's going to happen to him. He's doing something so much bigger. He's doing something so much more lasting for so many more people than what they at that moment as Israeli nationalists are wanting him to do. He's coming to make a much broader peace. He's coming to take away the sin of the world. He's coming not to slaughter Romans, but to lay his life down for Romans. And a lot of the people who've been hailing him as Messiah are not good with that because we want you to do what we want you to do. And so Jesus weeps because his people, the Jewish people here, are missing what he's about to do, to make for their peace, to make for their peace. And the result of their missing what he's doing is going to be more than disillusionment. It's going to be a calling for his death. And it's also by their continual calls of defiance against Rome, it will lead to their very destruction by Rome. Jesus weeps here as he knows. I'm going to let you down. Not because I'm going to let you down, but because your expectation of me, you haven't been listening to me. And they're going to press on in anger to their own hurt. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever blasphemed God, even as a Christian? I have. Because I was expecting him to do something. I knew what you should do, Lord, and you didn't do it. I'm not proud of it. I'll just, I'm, I'll, I'm just being transparent. My growth as a Christian has been a messy process. Maybe yours has just been roses and butterflies. Thank the Lord for that. Mine's been a very messy process. In fact, the process of sanctification, that's what we're, we're all in this process. If you received Christ, you've been justified. It's a past tense done deal. Justification is the act of God whereby he declared you righteous. And it's never changed since the moment you believed. In God's eyes, you are righteous. Sanctification is the ongoing messy process over a lifetime of God making you more like Jesus. It's a messy process. And it's been so messy at times in my life. I've been angry at God. I'm not angry at God anymore. I've gone through seasons. Because my expectation, because what I want flooded my ideas of what God needs to do more than what God's word says he's going to do. That's what they were doing. And we're all prone to this. Okay? I was so relieved when I found Matthew 12, 31, where Jesus said, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, the sons of men. I was like, woo! Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. 
you know. I've found that when I've been disappointed with God, the whole while he was working a much bigger, a much better, a much more lasting plan that was bigger than me. He was working things in my life that were bigger than me because it's not about me. It was bigger and better than what I had been expecting him to do. For 40 years now, over 40 years, walking with the Lord, I've come to see that God is good through it all, through all the messy process, all the crazy stuff, the drama, the sudden tragedies, the storms of life. God is good. He knows what he's doing. He's good, he knows what he's doing, and he's always on time. Put that in your pocket and carry that around with you. You might need it. He's good, he knows what he's doing. He's always on time. And there's been a lot less blasphemy coming out of my heart and a lot more praise. There's been a lot more surrender and a lot less of me clinging to my agenda. I find myself daily saying, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but you do, and you're good. You know what you're doing. You're always on time. Lord, I don't have control over all the circumstances and people in my life, but Lord, you're good. You know what you're doing. You're always on time. I find this daily rising out of my heart, this type of prayer. And I find myself saying, Lord, one day at a time, I just want to be faithful in the one thing here. Because I know you're good, Lord. I know that you know what you're doing. And you're always right on time. Jesus weeps here, looking over the city of Jerusalem because he knows that he's not going to meet their expectations. And those that are praising him now are going to be so disappointed, so angry at him that they are going to turn and call for his very death. They're going to be that disillusioned that many will abandon him and look for another Messiah who will do this the way they want it to be done. And they're going to find these guys. If you study in first century history, there were some 10 different guys that rose up and claimed to be the Messiah. And they were ready to lead the revolt against Rome and they all got killed. They all got smashed. And their followers all fell apart. The the, the whole thing disbanded. Jesus knows that the continuing defiance of Rome will bring Rome to the point where they've had enough. And there's just going to be so much pain. 37 years from this event in AD 70. 37 years later. And so he weeps here, knowing where it's headed. With tears streaming down his face, he says, if you had known, even you, my people, I love you. If you had known even you, especially in this, your day, this day is about you. This day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. We want political peace. You know what? There's not going to be peace on earth if there's no peace between men and God because if there's no peace between men and God, there's no peace inside your own soul. And if there's no peace inside your soul and my soul, we're not going to get along with each other. God's bringing peace, but he's bringing it his way. 
And it starts with peace with God. We are therefore having been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. And anyone, and maybe today's the beginning for some of you. You're going to find peace with God today. You're going to receive Christ. Then what you will find is you'll experience a substantial peace inside. It'll come together inside you. And if, you, if, if you're hanging out with someone else that has peace with God and a substantial peace inside, you'll find that your relationships begin to work. And then when you get nations full of people that have peace with God, peace inside, they're able to get along with each other, then we got some world peace. Until then, world peace is brought about by slaughtering 20, 30, 40 million people. Like in Uganda or in Romania, or how the Soviets brought about their ideology. You gotta slaughter everybody that disagrees. And then the people will live in that garbage heap until they can't stand it anymore. You gotta build walls to keep the people in. This is how the world brings peace. Jesus is bringing peace, but he's looking at his people. If you had known even you, this, on this your day, what it is that makes for your peace. I'm bringing you the peace. I'm bringing you peace. We're in the long game here, guys, but you're missing it. And you're going to agitate this thing until Rome comes in and just smashes and he weeps for them. I want to spend the last, last 10 minutes here together. Because Jesus here is alluding in this verse to perhaps the most amazing of all Bible prophecies that has partially been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and partially it's still yet to be fulfilled. But hundreds of years before this, hundreds of years before this, God showed Daniel the prophet the exact day that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem and it's this day when Jesus said, if you had known on this your day the things that make for your peace. We looked at this recently in our study in Daniel 9 and on Wednesday night, if you were part of that, the women are going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday mornings right now. Right, Bonnie? You guys still in Daniel? But Daniel had been in Babylonian exile for about 70 years. And as an old man, he was sitting there with his coffee and his scroll. And he was reading from the prophet Jeremiah who had prophesied before the exile 70 years ago. Daniel was sitting there in Persia. He was a servant to the king of Persia. He was intelligence because the guy was so gifted and he was reading there one day from Isaiah or from Jeremiah and he realized that Jeremiah had said that the exile would be 70 years and Daniel's like going, this is it. Wow, we're almost there. God's gonna bring us back. The spanking was gonna be 70 years and then God had said, I'll bring you back and you'll rebuild the city and the temple. And so there as he's realizing this, he began to pray he began to pray and God showed him a lot more than what he asked for. God showed Daniel as he's there serving the king of Persia that Judah would not only be soon brought back to, to Israel, to Judah, to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall under Nehemiah in the, in the temple under Ezra, but that God would bring the Messiah, get this, 
exactly 483 years from the day that the Persian king decrees that the Jews can return to rebuild their temple and their city. Exactly 483 years, the prophecy that Daniel got, Messiah would come. Okay? And you can do the math, but just a hint. It goes off the Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. Okay, when you study the Bible, you always got to go back to the context. The context is not medieval Europe. The context in the New Testament is first century Roman Empire Jewish world. Okay, so when you, if, you, if you're going to do the calculations, you use the Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar, from when the king of Persia gave the decree that the Jews could return in Daniel's day to rebuild, it is exactly 483 years to this day that we're looking at here in our text that Jesus is coming and he's saying, if you'd known even in this, your day. I covered Daniel 9. Pastor Ed covers everything in more depth than me. He's an unbelievable teacher, as you already know. But if you want to do an even deeper dive, this book here, The Coming Prince, it's by Sir Robert Anderson, who was, in, he was a, a detective at Scotland Yard in London. But he did all the calculations from Daniel's prophecy. And you can, you can see this amazing prophecy that Jesus is alluding to here. If you had known, even you this day, the things that make for your peace. He was coming to the city, not for relieving them of their local and immediate political frustrations. You know, he might not relieve us this year, in this election year, of all of your political frustrations. You know? He might not do that. But he was coming here to do something way bigger. Aren't you glad that he did something way bigger? He was coming here to make peace between God and your soul. What if he just would have just smashed the Romans and never went to the cross? He would have just slaughtered a bunch of people. Then we'd be sitting here dead in our sins today. But God did what he's doing. And he wants us dialed into him. He's, he died on the cross that week. He died on the cross, not just for Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, for the Romans that they wanted him to slaughter. And amazingly, this same prophecy of Daniel centuries before Christ showed that when the Messiah is made known 483 years after the king of Persia decreed that they could go back and rebuild Daniel says in Daniel 9.26 that when he's made known, he will be cut off. It was prophesied that when he was made known, he would be killed. It says in Daniel 9.26, but not for himself. He'd be killed for, for our sake, to take away our sin. And it says right there in Daniel, right after the Messiah is cut off, but not for himself, that Jerusalem will be destroyed again. <laughs> And that the temple would be taken down again. And when we look back in history, this all happened just like 
Daniel said it would, just like Jesus was affirming again. And 37 years after Christ was crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the dead, the Romans came in. Titus of Rome came in in 70 AD and smashed the city, killed over a million Jewish people and scattered most of the rest of them. This is why Jesus is weeping here. This is what's happening. If you had known even you, especially in this, your day, and the worship team, you guys can come on out. The things that make for your peace, I'm making for your peace. First things first, peace with God. Then you'll find a substantial, growing peace inside. And then you'll find as you have peace inside, you'll be able to relate so much better to one another. And eventually when enough people and the nations are full of people with this peace that God brings, there'll be peace in this world. First things first. Lord, we want to be dialed into you and what your word says, Lord, above our desires and our frustrations. Lord, we want our expectations to be set by your word that we don't miss out on the peace that you've made for us with you on the cross. Lord, we don't want to be missing out in causing you to weep <laughs> over us in your love for us because we're missing what you've provided. Lord, dial us into how you do things, to how you're doing this, that we would be fully engaged with you and on board with you. There'd be no disillusionment, no discouragement, but we'd be excited as we walk in your spirit, in your love, sharing the gospel of peace where we go. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name and everybody who agreed said out loud together, amen. Let's